Welcome to A Passion to Serve. My name is Don Kutnicki and I'm the host of the podcast. I've spent the majority of my professional career developing and implementing policies and programs to help break the vicious cycle of poverty that too many people endure. With A Passion to Serve, I bring you stories of individuals from all walks of life who are working towards similar goals and objectives. During our interviews, we discuss employment and training programs, Head Start services, financial literacy instruction, and so much more. And of course, I also speak to the people who are utilizing these programs to help create a better life for themselves and their families. I hope you decide to join me and learn about these amazing people who all have a passion to serve. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 18 of A Passion to Serve. Today, I'm speaking with Amador Diaz, Jr., Assistant District Director with the Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division. Amador, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, and uh, I really, really welcome the opportunity to um, to talk about what we offer here at the Department of Labor and uh, a little bit about you know my background as well, with, especially in the agricultural sector. Well, that's a really good segue where we can get started. If you want to share a little bit about your background, your education and professional background. Yeah. So I am, like, as you mentioned, I'm the assistant district director with the Federal Department of Labor. Uh, I'm in the Grand Rapids district office. And so if you look at the state of Michigan, we pretty much cover the entire state of Michigan outside of the Detroit thumb area. That's covered by the Detroit District Office. Uh, I was been with the Federal Department of Labor since 2009. I started out as, as an investigator, and I've been, man, it's now what, uh, 2009 to 2021, you know, 12, 13 something years or whatever. Time flies by really, really quickly. Uh, so yes, yeah, so I've been a assistant district director for uh, going on seven to eight years now, and then an investigator for four or five when I first started. Uh, prior to that, did a couple, a couple different things. Uh, one of the things that kind of ties into uh, this particular uh, line of work and also where I kind of know uh, you and, and several others as well as I was a, uh, I think back then we were called agricultural employment specialists with the state of Michigan. I think they have, they have changed titles uh, uh, since then. Uh, but essentially my job was to assist migrant farm workers in finding employment and other uh, needs, and then assisting farmers in meeting their their labor needs as well. And then I was also uh, did some did, did some time. I, I worked a lot with the migrant resource councils during that time. I was actually a president of the Northwest Migrant Resource Council up in the Traverse City area, in the Manistee area, and uh, you know. As far as my educational background, I have a master's degree in public administration uh, from Central Michigan University. Uh, I have an undergraduate degree uh, in criminal justice uh, in Spanish from Western Michigan University. Uh, yes, I did jump to the dark side and go to Central for my master's. It just kind of worked out that way. Uh, but uh, and then prior to that, you know, it was a little bit a little bit of everywhere, uh, to be honest with you. Um, I uh, was born in North Carolina. Uh, at the time, we were working in tobacco, uh, the tobacco industry. Um, I'm, uh, I, I guess, you know, a, I guess you, you say a son of migrant farm workers. 
and if you look at the traditional migrant farm working streams, right, there's the one that kind of starts, it all kind of starts in, in, in Texas or California somewhere. And, yep. you know, at one point or another in my life, I've, I, we, we kind of went through all three of those, you know, living in Bakersfield, California, and then traveling up to uh, Hood River, uh, Oregon, or parts of Washington to finish up with apples in the fall, uh, or starting in Texas, um, and, and, and working your way all the way up through Ohio and Michigan. Uh, and then the East Coast one, like I said, I mentioned I was born in North Carolina. I must have spent maybe a day or two in North Carolina, and that was it. And then we were off to Florida, uh, you know, right, you know, right after that for crops in Florida. And then we would eventually work our way back up north into New Jersey and, and New York, uh, ultimately finishing with uh, with apples as well there. So I think I did a count once, I don't know, 15, 16 different states that I actually lived in growing up. Uh, and we finally settled into Michigan. And the funny thing, I always tell my dad, you know, because I'm a huge baseball player. I love baseball. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a passion of mine. And we lived in Arizona. We lived in California. We lived in Florida. We lived in Texas. Uh, you know, all this, you know, everything else. And, and, and we, we ended up in Michigan, right? So, uh, and the, the interesting thing, yeah, my, my father uh, ended up getting a job, uh, you know, kind of being the farm manager for, at the time, one of the largest uh, apple farms in the state of Michigan, and we kind of settled out at that point. So, but we continued to work in agriculture. Uh, you know, I, even even throughout my college years, I would, con, you know, go back and, and help out and, and, and do different things. Um, so I always joke around with people and say, if you've eaten it, I have picked it. Uh, you know, so, you know, it's, uh, and the interesting thing about the job that I do now, enforcing, you know, you know child labor protections and, uh, you know, labor protections and, 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 and field sanitation, all that other stuff in the agricultural sector, which is one of the things that we do because we enforce a lot of different laws that protect all the U.S. workers throughout the country, uh, is that I have a very unique perspective of, of what that looks like. You know, my, you know, being a son of a farm labor contractor uh, for a while, a farm manager, uh, right. and just being, just being a farm worker myself. Uh, you know, kind of gives me a, a different perspective of, of how things kind of operate within that realm. So, well, I didn't realize that we had a couple of things in common. That I was for a period of time an agricultural employment specialist with the state of Michigan. Um, I wasn't. I didn't realize that that was part of your experience. And I also got my master's degree in public administration from Central Michigan. And I have children who went to Western. So, for those of you who aren't in Michigan, there's that's kind of the big robbery. So um, it's kind of interesting when Western Michigan and Central Michigan play every year in football season at our home right now. Um, yeah. It is interesting to me. You do have a very unique experience. And when you are enforcing labor laws, I would just think that you probably have that opportunity or the insight to look back at your own personal history and the history of your family that, yeah, this is a real significant issue that we need to address. And it must give you a sense of satisfaction knowing that you're helping um, other farm worker families so they don't maybe necessarily have to suffer through some of the things that you've witnessed as as a farm worker. Yeah, I mean, that's that's true. I think it it just sort of allows me to provide some some additional resources to even my own staff right when we're training them on you know certain situations or certain things that will pop up you know as we're out in the field and it, it 
it just kind of helps have that other, other level of, of perspective. It's not just simply, you know, black and white, uh, looking at the regulations or, or looking at those things. You know, you, we're dealing with, with, with human beings. We're dealing with, uh, individuals that have gone through a lot. I mean, being an immigrant in this country is not always the easiest thing in, in, in the world and especially in the agricultural sector where, you know, too often they are, you know, kind of, invisible to the populations that they, or the communities that they're that they're living in and so yeah we need to you know try to keep that in mind and and at the same time you know my role now is to you know you know be neutral as possible you know because we're, we're also dealing with with the with the the employers as well but you know that provides a unique situation too where you know, you are, we do have farmers that, that legitimately are doing their best to, uh, to do the right thing. And when they have other farmers or other farm labor contractors in, in their area who are skirting the regulations, uh, it's, it's not fair to them either. So there, there, there's always, there's that, there's that perspective as well. So it's not just the workers. There's also the, you know, the employers that we're trying to protect also. So it, to me, it's interesting that um, I've been having some conversations lately, and as you know, that Michigan uses a significant number of H-2A workers to harvest their crops, and it continues to grow every year, seemingly. And I've been having some different conversations with some families who continue to work in agriculture, and even though they are not an H-2A worker, they are sometimes working alongside individuals who are, and I've been hearing some input that um, – some of them are stating that they are not receiving the amount of pay that they should based on the hours worked that, that they are doing at this point in time. And, and just also sometimes they're paying um, additional money out to the crew leader that probably isn't, shouldn't be happening either. What is the process? What is the step or, or things that need to happen to address those kind of issues? Because obviously, and you're probably going to know what I'm going to say next, is there's a real fear. They don't want to say anything to anyone. They don't want to outwardly complain because then they may not be invited back. And I've heard other issues, too, where some of them may be in a situation where their family members in their home country in Mexico, for example, could be at risk if they mm -hmm. create any issues while they are here. Yeah, it's it's a, a, a it's a very real challenge. Um, it's a it's it's a pretty high hurdle uh, that we deal with, um, not just in agriculture, but anytime you're dealing with any uh, vulnerable population or immigrant population. But you know, you mentioned H2A. Uh, H2A is one of the uh, many different regulations that we enforce. Uh, there's a couple of them that you know are primarily there for protections of farm workers, um, you know, H2A being one of them. It's the, uh, the guest worker program, um, for agricultural workers that are here on a temporary basis. Uh, there's also the Migrant Seasonal, um, Pr uh, Protection Act, uh, that is for your more traditional migrant farm workers. There's the Fair Labor Standards Act and that, uh, provides minimum wage, uh, overtime protections, child labor protections, and there's also field sanitation. Uh, that fall under, we've kind of partnered with, with Myosha on, on enforcement of that one in the state of Michigan here. But in regards to the, to the, to the H2A situation, you know, H2A is unique where we, we have to establish who the H2A employer is. And that typically is the individual 
who holds the contract, right? Who has petitioned with the Employment and Training Administration and, and ultimately immigration to bring the workers in? And, you know, sometimes there is joint employment where we can establish joint employment between the individual contract holder and maybe another farmer or a farm labor contractor. Uh, but that's, it's a different level of, it's a different standard than, than, than it would be under, uh, traditional employment, um, standards that's there. So, uh, we have to establish that the non-contract holder is essentially the employer of record, right? right. So the suggestion that I always have for, for people is, you know, one thing that I always hear all the time is that, well, you know, we've been coming up and working with ABC Farms, for the past 15 years and now they're using an H-2A labor contractor or now they're using H-2A workers. And as soon as they hear that, they simply just don't go back or they don't apply. And my suggestion is always, well, apply for the H-2A job, right? Find out, try to find out who has the contract and apply for work there because more than likely you're going to qualify as long as you, you know, you, you, you meet the requirements and everything too. And, and, you know, one of the things to kind of keep in mind too is that, you know, there are situations where farmers turn to H2A, um, maybe because of the legal status of their workforce and, and a, and a concern or a real fear, um, depending on which administrations and what's going on with, with enforcement of, of immigration that their workforce may be taken away during the middle of the harvest season. Uh, so it is a little bit difficult for those that are undocumented to kind of qualify sometimes for these jobs, right? But, uh, the, the reality is that the, all the laws that we enforce, you know, it's, there is an, and a worker's legal status is really irrelevant, uh, to what we do. If you perform work in the country, you will be protected just like any other worker. So the, the other thing that you, so in, in relation to those workers, potentially that have, may, may have that issue or any worker really is if you are employed by an H2A contract holder, then, and if you're performing the same type of agricultural work, that the H-2A workers are performing, then you're entitled to all the same protections during the contract period, right? It has to be during the contract period. You're entitled to those same wages. You're entitled to the same benefits of free housing, uh, transportation, if uh, if applicable. Uh, all those different things are there. And it's something that it's, it's difficult, right? Because, you know, you had mentioned the, the fear of retaliation, the fear of losing their jobs. Um, we don't know what's happening in Mexico or Guatemala or wherever these workers are coming from. Um, you know, so it, it's employee cooperation is something that is a struggle, uh, not only for us, but I, I can imagine for any, any agency, any enforcement agency that's out there. And so there's a reason that we don't normally sit around and wait for complaints in this particular industry because of that. We know that, that that's a real fear. You know, the same thing in the service industry, whether it being restaurants or hotels, uh, construction and agriculture, those are those are some of the industries where we don't typically get a lot of complaints historically and we do we try to do uh, directed work in that particular area, meaning that, you know, we will have, you know, 
some different strategies to try to identify some potential employers uh, or, or labor contractors for us to to investigate during 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 that particular year. So the only thing that I can stress to, to individuals and we do when we're out in the field and doing conducting our investigations, if we're interviewing workers, you know, we let them know that the the interviews are confidential uh, and up to the greatest extent protected under the law. You know, in rare situations, if the case goes full blown litigation and and we have to sort of, you know, share information and stuff like that, then, you know, redacted statements and all kinds of other stuff may 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 um, cross, you know, pass between our our solicitor's office and and legal counsel from the other side. But that's pretty rare that cases go that that to that extent. So in most situations, the interviews that are con- that are taken by our field staff, you know, that's only really seen by by me or whoever's you know supervising you know that particular investigation. Uh, we never go back to the employer and say, hey, you know, Juan told us this. Um, this right. is why we're here. Uh, and because the re- the reality is that it doesn't matter why we're there. Uh, conducting an investigation, the process is going to be the same. We're, you know, we're still going to, uh, speak with the employer and or their representative, get as much information as we can about the business, how they do things, you know, how they keep time records, how they pay people, um, how they're recruiting people in, in sense of, especially with agriculture, the, the different recruiting uh, requirements that are there. We're going to try to interview as many current and former employees as we can. We're going to look at records, et cetera. So the process is the same, you know, regardless of what's there. And we, and there, and we do remind employers, we share information with them right up front, advising them of the anti-retaliation provisions and all the different laws that we enforce and, and the serious trouble that they can get into, uh, you know, in regards to not necessarily, not just penalties. But uh, there are situations that, you know, it could go beyond that if there's, you know, say kickbacks of, you know, back wages that are owed or, or, or there are things like that that, that are happening. Um, in regards to the deduction issues, you know, it just really depends on the situation, right? If you're dealing with your traditional migrant farm workers, um, you know, outside of H2A, you know, you know, all deductions has, has to be disclosed to them at the point of recruitment. The H2A program, same thing, right? It's just the H2A program is kind of, um, the Migrant Farm Worker Protection Act, you know, on steroids almost, right? It kind of, there's a little bit more protections in regards to, to that particular law. And it's very similar though in that you can't make any deductions, you know, unless it's disclosed. And ultimately, really, you know, housing must be provided for free, transportation must be provided for free, things like that. We do know that raiteros, you know, those are, you know, transporting people back and forth or whatever, um, they're charging whatever they're charging um, farm workers to move them from one state to another or whatever the case may be. Uh, those individuals have to be licensed as farm labor contractors and have to carry proper insurances and all those things. And, you know, so that's, that's an issue. Uh, there's also issues of, you know, you know, paying a farm labor contractor or paying, uh, you know, some recruiter somewhere, whether it's back in Mexico or paying them here for, for the job. And the only thing that I can say to that is that, it's illegal, right? They can't, they can't be asking for that. Uh, but it does happen. And, and that's where, you know, we've 
and in, in, in cases that we've, you know, done and out of our office, you know, if we can establish that that is a practice, uh, then that's something that we are asking the employer to pay back. That is a strong, um, you know, factor that may go into potentially debarring an individual from using the H-2A program in the future, uh, or if they're a, a farm labor contractor, you know, uh, you know, seeking certificate revocation or things of that nature, uh, you know, in regards to their certificates as well, so that they are kind of outside of the program, you know, for, for a, a certain period of time. So, yeah, there's, a, you know, it's kind of a long-winded answer, but uh, there's a lot there. Uh, I think the, the main thing, though, is that, you know, we try to establish the best rapport that we can with the individuals that we're working with so that they can, you know, provide us the information. Because a lot of this is going to be off the records. And it really boils down to how much the workers are willing to disclose to us so that we can have enough information to move forward with an investigation. Because if an investigator is presenting an employer, right, with findings, it can't be something that they assume is happening, right? It can't be something that they think is happening. It has to be something that we can ultimately go in front of a federal judge and argue that this is happening and this is all the evidence that we have for it. And if I have one brave soul out of a group of 30 people that we interview that actually tells us about the kickbacks or about certain things that are going on, and that's all we have, it's that's going to be very, very, you know, that's hard for us to move forward with that particular allegation, right? So I think that's something that's kind of lost oftentimes, too, with people outside, uh, people that kind of look into the type of work that we do is that, you know, we, you know, we are there trying to do the best that we can to establish that these violations are occurring. But oftentimes, if they're not on the records or if there's not a paper trail of them, uh, then it's, it's, it can get difficult to prove. And, and it's not that it's not happening. It's just that we don't have enough evidence to ultimately move forward with that particular, particular situation. And what, what happens back home in Mexico or Guatemala, wherever, wherever it's occurring, you know, that's, it's difficult to control, <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, we do have strong relationships. You know, we have, uh, memorandums of understanding with, you know, different consulates and different, different other entities. And we do work with them closely. You know, I work very closely with the, uh, the, uh, El Consulado de Mexico out of, out of Detroit. And on numerous occasions, you know, you know, they forward us information about potential issues that's going on. Or, you know, if I have individuals that I know that have returned to Mexico, uh, they have assisted us in, you know, making sure that these workers get paid. You know, so they have assisted us in, in turning over checks or uh, getting, you know, banking information or whatever we need so that we can get back wages uh, back to individuals that have returned to Mexico for, for di different reasons. But, uh, yeah, so it's just it really depends on the situation that's there. But I think the, the, the main thing that I want to convey and that we try to convey to people is that, you know, when we do speak to individuals, it is confidential. Uh, you know, they're. There is protections there um, if, if, if employers do try to retaliate against you uh, for either cooperating with the investigation or, or whatever it is. And we never confirm, we never go back to an employer or a contractor and say, hey, we're here because of this reason uh, or so-and-so told us this or whatever. Um, you know, it may be 
you know, usually it's in the sense of the facts of the investigation show this, right? right. It's not that, you know, Don told me <laughs> that this right. is happening. And, and, and there is a rare, there are rare occasions where, you know, if we, if we're, that we're not able to establish something and, and we go back to those, in the, you know, outside of using your, using your name, right? And then, in those instances, we may go back to the, the, those individuals, right? I, you know, for example, you know, you're, I, we're investigating a, a construction company, for example, and uh, you have one employee who is alleging that he's working 10 hours off the clock. And, you, you know, the other interviews don't show it and the records don't show it. But the guy is adamant, the guy or gal is adamant that, that this is actually happening. And, you know, so we go back to the person and say, look, you know, we can't establish it either other, other way other than using your name. Are you okay with giving us permission to use your name and trying to pursue these allegations forward? And and if the, the employee gives us permission to use their name, then, then, then we address it that way at that point. But um, it's never without consent you know, that we would go back and use someone's name in that situation. So, Well, you, you hate to see or you, I had a little bit of concern about history repeating itself because the, the, the concerns that were expressed to me recently had more to do with farm labor contractors who are bringing in HOA workers. And that, um, you know, when I was an agricultural employment specialist, there was a point in time where if there was a wage and hour violation and if you were using a licensed crew leader, that uh, the grower was kind of arm's length away and they could say, well, go go talk to the crew leader. That person is responsible for his workforce. I'm not culpable. I'm not liable. And my concern would be, are we trying to see, are we seeing that pattern possibly happening all over again with the utilization of H2A workers where crew leaders are working with multiple employers and the employers would say something similar, which is, they're not my H2A workers. You need to talk to the crew leader. And and as a follow-up question, Amador, I'm also wondering, is it harder to track down the farm labor contractors? Is it hard to identify and maintain um, ongoing investigations with people who are either been confirmed bad actors or potential bad actors when providing this service to growers? Yeah, the, you know, the use of H-2A labor contractors, especially, you know, or, or labor contractors in general, um, you know, I mean, to, the reality is that Michigan is turning to predominantly H-2A for, to meet their agricultural needs. And, and, you know, for different reasons, it's kind of ended up that way. And the use of H-2A labor contractors, it grows. You know, we see more and more of them every single year. And, it goes back to who the employer is, right? And, you know, in the, in the realm of H-2A, uh, the employer, the individual that petitioned for these workers and signed off on all the documents with, uh, with the U.S. government there, uh, they're the ones that are responsible, ultimately responsible, uh, for the, the compliance of the workers and their wages and housing and transportation and et cetera, uh, underneath the program. And, if they are providing workers to multiple farmers, uh, you know, those have to be listed in their contract. Uh, one of the issues that we run into is, you know, the workers working outside of their area of intended employment, right? So that is a, you know, and it, it, it's not necessarily that they're supposed to be at this one farm 
in in Holland and they're at another farm right down the road type of a thing. It's more of you know that that's an issue could, could potentially be an issue as well, um, but it's more of these workers from Georgia are now in Michigan and they were never told they were going to be in Michigan, right. uh, and you know now they're 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 doing crops that that were they weren't told and et cetera. So you know that's that that's an issue that we see uh, that can get into a other realm of potential human trafficking and all kinds of other things that the labor contractors is is putting themselves at risk for, but the the issue is going to be who's who the employer is right and whenever we're dealing with those farm labor contractors and the farmers that they're providing services to you know we have to be able to establish as i mentioned earlier and and especially in the world of h2a we we have to establish to establish joint employment you have to establish that the farmer is also controlling the workers Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's different, there's a lot of different factors that we look into, but it's, it's, it's more than just simply contracting with a labor contractor to provide, right. to harvest their crop. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so yeah, there, there can be a little bit of a, a shield, so to speak, to that farmer because they're using a labor contractor. But if the farmer starts doing too much, right, they start trying to control the wages, they start con- starting to control um, they start trying to maybe fire individuals or, or, or do things that a normal traditional employer would do. Uh, then at that point, you know, we could establish potentially joint employment and ultimately hold the farmer responsible, uh, you know, for, you know, any violations that are occurring, you know, during that time. It gets challenging, though, Don, because that labor contractor may only spend one or two days on that farmer's property that work week. And then they're on three other farms that same week, right? So, at yeah. at what point, you know, who's responsible for what? And and right. and farmer 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 A and farmer B, the only thing they have in common is that they grow apples and they use the same labor contractor, right? They, right. You know, they don't have any, you know. So, it, it's 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 a interesting web that that yeah. that, that is that is uh, being you know made up here, and uh, you know it's it's definitely a challenge. But if there if there is an opportunity. To establish joint employment, then that's something that we we would definitely try to do as an agency because ultimately we want to uh, bring as many workers as possible, you know, into compliance and many employers as well uh, into compliance. So if there's opportunities there for joint employment, um, that's you know typically done uh, outside of my pay grade, so to speak, as far as the right. changes. Uh, that, uh, are done from administration to administration in regards to how the, uh, joint employment rules are, 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 are changing. Um, but, uh, you know, we, whatever provisions are there in regards to joint employment, the definition of employee, et cetera, you know, that's what we're, we are enforcing when we're out there. And, um, I would, I would state the only thing I would, I would, I would add to that is that, you know, if we if we do have information that um, you know farmers are 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 more involved or actually acting as an employer, um, then that's something that you know would be helpful for us to know so that we could you know, try to target those, those situations. But and it does make it difficult to you know try to figure out where the workers are. Right? If I'm trying to if I'm trying to send out investigators to interview the workers 
and we're trying to say we have some allegations that something's happening or even without allegations that something is happening. And we're trying to have somewhat of an element of surprise, so to speak, so we can kind of get to the workers before the labor contractor especially finds out so that, that there's no coaching or threatening or anything like that that happens. There's 70 job locations, <laughs> you know, in, you know, you know, in the contract. And yep. it, 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 uh, it becomes a challenge trying to figure out where those workers can be from day to day. So, uh, yeah, that does add a little bit of a, of a level of, of difficulty when it comes to trying to track, track the workers down, you know, outside of, you know, conducting, you know, surveillance and trying to figure out, you know, where they're going and, and everything too. But that changes from time to time, depending on, on what, what crop they're working on, et cetera. So. Well, it's never simple, is it, you know, for any of us in the work that we do in here. And the one thing that I would want to add that I think really benefits the state of Michigan quite a bit is the connections that we have with local migrant resource councils. And these are groups of community and agency partners that work on behalf of migrant and seasonal farm workers. So there's a real benefit to us here where we're in regular communication back and forth so we at least have some understanding and in some sense as to what is going down and a lot of what is going on with the local market resource councils will find its way to the statewide interagency migrant services committee and that really can help us inform policy and and really help us determine where does our energies really need to be focused on right now to address those primary concerns that are coming up as we both know, the farm worker population, many of our farm workers are monolingual in Spanish. And how do you address that with your investigators? Is there always someone available that communicates in Spanish? Or how do you overcome that particular hurdle as well? Yeah, we, we do have Spanish speaking investigators um, out of our office. Uh, you know, I'm you know, a Spanish speaker myself. So uh, I, from, from time to time, will go out and, and assist with interviews. Uh, you know, we'll try not to do that as much as possible, being that I am, you know, ultimately the one uh, maybe potentially reviewing that particular investigation. Um, but, yeah, we do bring investigators in from, from different offices. You know, we are a federal agency, so the, you know, the, the laws that we enforce are the same, regardless of what state you're in. Uh, so, you know, I I could bring in an investigator from from my Indianapolis district office or Chicago or wherever and use their their Spanish speaking skills to assist us, you know, from time to time as needed. Uh, we do have translation services. You know, we do have translation lines that we that we use. Uh, so, you know, we can doesn't matter what language you speak. We have access to it. Uh, so it's not just the Spanish. It, it could be something that a, a dialect from certain from somewhere in the, in the world or, uh, you know, or just, you know, different languages that are spoken. Uh, so we do have access to a translation services as well. The one thing that, you know, we try to do is, is you know, one thing that we're going to try to do moving forward here is try to bring in some more Spanish speaking investigators. Uh, not just for agriculture, you know, you know, as as I mentioned earlier, agriculture is is only one of the, 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 the sectors or, or parts that we deal with. Um, so most of our work is is done outside of agriculture, you know, out of my office. So we have Spanish speakers in all other industries that, right. that we need to serve and protect as well. So, you know, definitely, you know, trying to, you know, recruit 
uh, you know, Spanish speakers to, to be investigators is something that, that, uh, we need to kind of continue to work on and strive to do so that we have, um, we can start sort of eliminating some of those barriers, uh, that are, that are out there because you lose, in my opinion, you, you lose some of that, um, connection with the individual if you're using a translation service, right? It's kind of, you're going back and forth and, and, and it doesn't seem as, as, as personal at, at, at that time. So, you know, being able to, to speak the, the, the language and, and not even being a native speaker like myself, you could, you know, as long as, as long as you speak the language and you're making an effort, um, you know, uh, farm workers are, are, are appreciative of that and, and they will, and they will work with that individual. Um, right. you know, they, uh, I've, that's not one thing that I've noticed you know, from, from, you know, in my entire life is just that if you make an effort to, to right. speak the language and, and assist us that the, the farm workers will be appreciative of that. They are, they always have been. So, uh, so yeah, definitely trying to find more Spanish speakers. You know, we do have Spanish speaking services and investigators and staff that are out there to, to be able to, to, to assist, um, during our investigations as well. So. Well, I really, I appreciate the conversation about, um, issues specific to the agricultural industry. But another reason why I wanted to talk to you and in particular talk with you this week is it is or it has been Labor Rights Week. And I'm wondering what you could tell me about that. Yeah. So Labor Rights Week is, I mean, it's something that we've participated with for as long as I've been uh, with the agency and as long as it's been a focus um, throughout the different administrations that we've been working with. And it's an opportunity to kind of go out into the different communities um, to really focus, you know, the attention on uh, worker rights and worker protections. Uh, the big thing right now that, that we're working with right now is it's, it's a campaign. It's the Essential Workers Essential Protections campaign that's, that we've been doing that across the entire country. And it's, you know, outreach, a tremendous amount of outreach that's being conducted by uh, our cores, which is our community outreach specialist, but also, you know, folks like myself or investigators as well that are doing, you know, presentations and, you know, different, you know, um, spots, either on radio or, or TV or whatever, trying to get as much information as we can out to the workers about their rights that they have as, as, as employees. And, uh, we partner a lot with the Mexican consulate. I've done a lot of different things with the uh, Hispanic Chamber of Commerces here in West Michigan, um, Hispanic centers, things of that nature, just to be able to provide as much information as we can, get our contact information out there, get our resources out there to people. Um, we have a tremendous amount of resources online. Uh, we, you have ability to, to contact us, you know, and, and speak to someone they try to you know, um, usually, uh, you know, answer those calls live, if at all possible. Sometimes it does go to voicemail, uh, but, you know, you will get called back usually that same day as we have many people that are, uh, you know, on our uh, technical assistance or our phone duty, um, you know, rosters on, on, on every, every given day. So, you know, that's just, it's, it's more of, you know, trying to spend a week or two highlighting those particular things, but that doesn't mean that that's the only time that we do it, right? right? So, you know, these are things that we are doing throughout the year. We're always looking for opportunities to present. You will find uh, myself or other uh, staff from my office 
at Migrant Resource Council trainings uh, for staff or for employers throughout the year. You will find us at um, employer um, meetings, you know, or, or, or trainings that's, that's out there for them as well. You know, we will go to um, churches. We will, you know, we will go to just about anywhere that we're invited to for the most part. There are some parameters and we do have to get some approvals for things, but uh, you know, we will go to as many different places as we can to uh, provide this information to 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 folks. And uh, it's been a little bit of a challenge with the whole COVID situation over the past you know 15 months or so. A lot of that's been done remotely, uh, but we are starting to start doing more face-to-face -face, uh, things out in the community as well. You know, as things are you know somewhat getting better <laughs> right. like yeah. Said, so yeah. yeah it seems to be two steps forward three steps back but we'll keep moving forward as, as best we can and i i appreciate you bringing up um the phrase essential workers and i try to communicate that a lot during the podcast in any other meetings and trainings that i'm doing and it's usually specific to the farm worker population that I don't know people who are outside of agriculture, if they really even think of when they visualize essential worker, I don't think they're necessarily thinking of the farm workers who are harvesting our crops. So I think that's a message that I always like to convey um, whenever I'm interacting with groups of people. Where else can they find information where people can find information not only about Labor Rights Week, but other important um, wage and hour specific information, whether it's a a website or a Facebook page, where can they go to access this information? Yeah, I mean, the, we do, there is our, the public facing website, you know, the dol.gov, you know, dol.gov. Um, there's, there you can head over to our wage and hour division section. And if you follow along the tabs up top, there's, there's tabs for workers, there's for employers, for, you know, uh, uh, if you're looking for information on the particular laws that we enforce, there's a ton of fact sheets that are out there. Most of those are provided in multiple languages on all the different, uh, you know, different protections that are there for the workers. Uh, there's, you know, contact information there for district offices uh, in the particular area that the individuals are in. You know, once again, this we are part of a federal agency. So the information that is there is applicable to you, whether you're in Georgia or you're here in Michigan. Right. Uh, you know, one thing that I do a ton whenever I interact with anyone is I, I hand out business cards like crazy to the right. workers, right? Because, you know, they may not be willing to talk to you right there because the farm labor contractors around or the farmers around or whatever. Um, so they may call you afterwards or just maybe there's nothing going on at that time. Uh, but, I've been amazed that my that that business card is hung on to, right? And I'll get calls six, seven years later, and it'll be, hey, this is so and so. You you interviewed me on such and such a farm. Um, I have this going on, and 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 everything else. So you know that's something that I try to do. My investigators do as well to try to you know to distribute those as much as possible. Uh, we do have a uh, the. Our general number here in Grand Rapids, um, that is 616-456-2004. Um, that will get, you know, routed directly to our office and, and ultimately into our, um, you know, uh, individuals that are, that are, you know, taking calls that day. There is a, 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 a toll-free number, which is 866-487-9243. Um, 
you know, we do have Facebook, we are on Twitter, we're on, and, and you know, all the different social media outlets as well. So you are able to follow the Department of Labor and, and get information. And the, the thing about it is that, you know, I work for the Wage and Hour Division, which is only one of the agencies underneath the very large Department of Labor umbrella. So, you know, you, you could, you can get information on, on the, uh, OSHA, which is the, you know, safety and health provisions. You can get information on the Employment and Training Administration, uh, you know, the, the wage and hour, you know, all those different things are on the website and, uh, or even, you know, part of our, our, our social media presence also. So there's tons of different ways to get a hold of us. Um, they can, you know, always give us a call in the office if you're looking for, you know, us to provide information or provide, you know, speak at a presentation or, or seminar anywhere. Um, they can reach out to us and we'll be more than happy to accommodate as many of those requests as we can uh, as well. So. Our experience at Telemon Corporation, and I think with a lot of other agencies, is similar to yours, where you never know when people are going to reach out and and connect with you if it's three, five, six years after the fact, of, after having that conversation. And I also think, too, that I think it's because of the reputation, the positive reputation that you have within the local communities that they're more trusting and willing to do that. I know that with a lot of the work that we do, that there's a real desire to have a confidential conversation. And I also think, too, that they need to hear this consistently over and over again, and they need to see and hear about the positive results that people are getting by taking a chance and speaking up about abuses that are happening. So that's a direct compliment to you and to your staff and all the good work that you are doing. And I want to thank you so much, Amador, for joining me today on A Passion to Serve. This won't be the last time that um, I look forward to having future conversations with you on the podcast. So thank you. No, thank you. Like I said, I would welcome to come back and speak to you anytime about this. It's something that's very important and passionate to me, um, not just because of my background, but just, you know, uh, farm workers play such an essential role uh, to all of our communities. And then, as you mentioned earlier, uh, it doesn't get much es- more essential than providing the food <laughs> that we that, that, that we eat on a daily basis. Uh, I mean, that, no disrespect to the, 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 the healthcare community or anything like that. But uh, the one thing that I'll end on is that, you know, we appreciate the relationships that we do have with other stakeholders and other other groups. And if you guys do have information to share with us, then, you know, please, please share that information and we will do our best, you know, to use you guys as a resource. If you have relationships already built up, you've already built up trust with a particular group or a particular farm worker. Um, they've come to you with, with particular issues that in and of itself is very difficult, as you know, for them to even speak up to you or anyone about it. And so to introduce them now to a federal agency or a federal investigator right. is even more intimidating. And right. so whatever we can do to work together to put those individuals at ease and at least advise them of what rights they have and put it in their court to make a decision if they want to move forward or not is, is, is I think, the best thing that we can do. And ultimately, they may not decide to to say anything or speak out at that time. But if we can educate them, maybe, like you said, eventually there was will, will come a time where the situations change and they're willing to come forward and, and, and speak to us at that time. So 
I, I do encourage that type of communication as well. And, and as, as, as I said earlier, we're, we're here to, to, to serve as many people as we can and, and to provide those protections, whether it's uh, wages, which is a lot of the things that we do, but agriculture is very different in that a lot of the things that we do may not necessarily have a direct tie to an employee not being paid properly. Uh, right. You know, so if they're having issues with the, the migrant housing that's being offered to them or the transportation situation, uh, a lot of all those things also fall under our jurisdiction as well. So, like I said, you know, 616-456-2004, that's the number to our office. Um, and they can speak directly to one of our technicians or an investigator. Uh, or if they want to speak to me directly, just, you know, have them routed to me and I can, I, I can, I can deal with them too. So. We would definitely reach out to you and, and I'll definitely continue to spread, spread the good word. And, um, once again, just thank you for joining me on the podcast and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Salvador. Thank you. Thank you for listening to A Passion to Serve. You can follow A Passion to Serve on Spotify, where you have access to my interviews from seasons one through three, along with recently published episodes. Until next time.